Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Hey. Glad you guys are here this morning. Hope everybody's doing okay. And um, that's it. 11 o'clock. Got all the time in the world. I make that joke every week. I never live up to it. One of these days, I'm just going to get up here and like preach for like four hours and just see how many people. No, you don't want that. I don't want that. No one wants that. It's, uh, I reached my threshold, I feel like, already um, of attention spans and, and everything else. So, no, glad you guys are here. We're working through the book of Ephesians. If you've never been here, uh, what we do is we, 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 we pray about it, we think about it, and we think about where we feel like God is leading us. We pick a book of the Bible and we just work through it word for word, line by line, verse by verse until we get through it. I, this is the first time I've ever taught Ephesians, which is crazy because it's, it's not only a short book, um, it's a very monumental book in the Bible. It was a letter written from Paul, which, which most of the New Testament is, is letters, uh, written from Paul, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 62 AD. He wrote about it from, or wrote to, to the churches in an area in Western Turkey, in an area called Ephesus, while he was in prison in Rome. And the reason why Paul wrote this particular letter was some bad theology, some bad teaching, some bad philosophy had started to, to kind of infiltrate the church. And so he wrote this as a concern for the people in this area saying, hey, this is good theology. Theology just means how we, how we understand, think about God. Um, this is good theology. This is what you are. This is how we are to live. And he's basically just kind of setting them straight on who they are and what they should believe. If you weren't here last week, chapter one, something that we kind of talked about and uh, not anything overtly complicated, but we kind of ended this discussion talking about we can often become, as Christians, complacent and forget how big of a deal it is that we have, not only that we are known by God, but that we can have a relationship with God. And all of us fall into this. All of us can get distracted. All of us can get busy. All of us can get lazy spiritually. And we just forget how, how the magnitude of the fact that we can know God the second thing we talked about last week is we talked about if we understand that there is a, a, it is a big deal that we know God and can have a relationship with him, that should be shaping us into different people. It is bad theology to believe that one can have a relationship with God and not change. In fact, it defeats the whole purpose of knowing God. The whole purpose of knowing God is, is to be saved, to be redeemed, to be restored. We're going to talk about today, we are going from death to life, and that looks differently. So not only should we understand that having a relationship with God is a big deal, we should understand that with that comes change. That's, that's a good thing. What we're going to talk about today is this. Uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians is a very famous chapter, a very important chapter. Verse 8 and 9 are, are kind of some key verses in how we understand our salvation. Very simple, but very profound. Um, sometimes misused a little bit. We'll talk about all that. But that's not where we're going to hang out. We're not going to hang out on verses 8 and 9. We'll go through it and we'll talk about it. But there's this kind of nugget at the end where, where Paul talks about that Jesus is the cornerstone, that we are a building, right, that God is building, but at the cornerstone of this building is, is Jesus himself. And we're going to talk about that and we're going to hang out on that. We're going to ask, basically, is Jesus our foundation? And not just that, is Jesus our authority? Is he both what we build ourselves on and is he the authority, the end of everything that we do? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's a happy first image, isn't it? It's October, so that's okay. You know, some spooky stuff, some graveyards. You know, so coming, we're just going to talk a little bit. Uh, so coming from, from, I used to love scary movies. I, I love old, cheesy horror films. Um, as I've gotten older, I feel more convicted. And then as you have children, you know, you feel more convicted about these things, but I still like watching scary stuff in October. I say scary because I'm old. Um, I've watched that Munsters movie on Netflix twice now. <laughs> Anyone else grow up watching the Munsters besides me? Any? Okay, all right. Now, people who do not know of the Munsters, you watch that on Netflix and you're like, this is really dumb and campy. It's because the Munsters was really dumb and campy. Like, and the fact that I could watch a Rob Zombie movie with my kids, I thought was just kind of neat in and of itself. So. That's a joke if you've never seen any. Okay, I'm gonna stop. This is, people don't leave the church because of the theology I teach. They just leave the church mainly because they don't like me. So maybe I should talk less and just get back into, into the scriptures. So you should have got a notes handout when you, when you came in, it has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, uh, click on sermon notes, everything is right there. 
And we are, if you have a Bible, after the book of Galatians, we have the book of Ephesians. And we'll run through chapter two uh, pretty rapidly this morning. It's pretty short, okay? So let me pray, and I, I think you'll enjoy this, some good stuff in here, and um, hopefully it's a blessing to you today, all right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you, Lord, um, so much for everyone in this room. Thank you, Father, that we have the freedom and the opportunity to, to come in here to worship you. Thank you for the freedom and opportunity to, to get to break open the Bible and to study that and learn from that. I pray that it blesses us this morning, not just us. I pray that every church in our community is blessed. God, our other campuses and the churches in those communities. Pray for all the wonderful nonprofits we're working with. And God, we just pray that at the end of everything that we do today, that you are glorified, that you are honored. And um, Father, that, that you are, are magnified, made bigger in our lives and that what we want is made smaller. Lord, we love you, we thank you. Keep your hand on us today as we study God in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm just gonna warn you, the first three verses are kind of dark and depressing, but it's gonna get better, okay, here we go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Paul is saying spiritually dead. There was a time when we were all spiritually dead. In chapter one, we talked a little bit about forgiveness and redemption. Paul talks about this. In chapter two, he emphasizes why forgiveness and redemption are so important. The reason why is we are spiritually dead if we live in sin, if we live in our trespasses. Now, this is a word that we say sometimes in church, but we don't define it very often. I would make the argument that in the American church, we don't even talk about sin that much, which is problematic because the Bible does and says that we need to address it. So what are sins, what are trespasses? A sin is an isolated mistake, right? Or, or it may not be a mistake, it's something we deliberately do, but it's a violation of God's commands. So if you tell a lie, that is a sin. Now, if you continually tell lies and have bought into the lie that, that you can tell lies for your own advantage, that is living in a trespass. That is a lifestyle of violating God's commands. So there is a difference, I think this will make sense to you, there is a difference between telling a lie and being a liar. We can make mistakes, maybe in a time of desperation or a time of selfishness or a time of, of not thinking clearly where we may do something wrong and we should ask God to forgive us of that and we should repent for that. It's another thing when we live in our trespasses where we have bought into this idea that it's okay to continually violate the laws of God. If we live in those things, we are spiritually dead. But here's something good. Paul said that's the way you used to walk. This is very, very important. That post coming into a relationship with Jesus, we don't live in that stuff anymore. So when we become Christians, we are choosing to not follow the ways of the world, but to follow the ways of Jesus. This is very, very simple, logical stuff. That when I say that I'm a follower of Christ, that means I follow Christ. That means that I do what the Bible tells me to do to the best of my abilities. None of us are perfect, but we are working in that direction. So accepting Jesus is, is not just a spiritual change, it is a, it is a mindset change. It is a mental change. And that should be evident in every corner of our life. So what that means is this, and I, I shouldn't have to say this, but American Christianity has really messed this stuff up. To claim Jesus without evidence of Jesus is not of Jesus. It's not biblical. So if I say I'm a Christian, that should be evident in the way I think and act and live my life. That, that should be clear to people. It shouldn't surprise, you are? That's not a good response, right? That it should be evident in our lives. And listen, man, I, I hate to get spiritual in church this morning, bear with me. But if we are being disobedient to God, we are working under the influence of Satan. Well, Corey, that sounds extreme. There's only two pathways in life. 
There is following the, the teachings of Jesus, right? Being obedient to Jesus, or there's being disobedient, which the Bible says you are following the ruler of the power of the air. That is the devil. So that is a spirit. When we have disobedience in our life to God's commands, we're working under the influence of Satan. Sounds dramatic, but it's biblical. And so when a society that works in disobedience to God is a society working under the influence of Satan. And I'm gonna tell you, the United States, man, we are very much under the influence of the devil. Well, why do you say that? We're one nation under God. You're right, we are one nation under God. It's just not the true God. The God of America is the God of the individual. That is ourselves, right? And this is the first temptation that Satan ever used. In Genesis chapter three, that's in the beginning of your Bible, the Genesis of your Bible. If you go to the beginning of your Bible in chapter three, the devil approaches Eve and he doesn't say, worship me. He doesn't show up like the devil in legend, you know, and he's like on fire and he's like, worship me, I'm cooler than God. He doesn't do that. He subtly walks up, the Bible uses that word. He, he was subtle, more, more subtle than anything else. He walked up and he said, hey, can you do anything you want in the garden? And Eve says, I can do everything I want, except I can't eat from that tree. And Satan goes, well, why can't you eat from that tree? Well, because God said no. And then he goes, did he? Do you know that God told you not to eat from that? Because if you eat from it, this is what the devil says, you will be like God. If you just do what you wanna do, you become your own God, the devil said. Amen. Welcome to the United States of America. This is exactly what you hear from every single corner, every single corner. The prevailing God of our culture is the God of self. And we as a society are following the ruler of the power of the air, whether we believe in that stuff or not. It is a fact, it is true. And we as individuals need to make sure that we're aware of it so we don't make that mistake. Because aligning ourselves with evil has consequences. This is another lie of American society that you can do whatever you wanna do and someone will bail you out. They might temporarily, but eventually it's all gonna catch up to us. There are consequences for our actions. When we live in sin, we live, as Paul says, as children under wrath. Now that can mean a couple of different things. The first thing it can mean is there are natural consequences to living in sin. Let's say for being promiscuous with sex, right? If we have sex with lots and lots of people, there are biological consequences and psychological consequences for promiscuous sex. If you have sex with plenty of people, lots of people, anyone who wants to have sex with you, you'll eventually probably get sexually transmitted disease or an unwanted pregnancy. There are deep psychological effects, especially for women who have sex with multiple partners over a short period of time. There are all these different just natural consequences to that. If you steal a car or if you kill someone, these are both commandments that you're not supposed to do, you will go to jail. These are just natural consequences of sin. There are even times though, when God will do something intentionally to us because we have sinned. Most of the time to get our attention so we will repent for sin and be saved. But sometimes God even inflicts things on us because of sin. All throughout the Bible, we see God doing this. The third thing is, if we do not address the sin in our life, all of us will eventually stand in front of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous judge, and we will either be judged for the good works we have done and we will go to heaven, or we will be judged for the bad works we have done and we will go to eternal damnation, which is separation from God. Now look, whenever I say stuff like that, because the Bible talks about it a lot, whenever you mention things like hell and church, how could a loving God send people to hell? I'm gonna tell you exactly how a loving God can send, send someone to hell. By how we live our life, we choose if we want to be with Jesus for eternity or be separated from Jesus for eternity. So what Jesus does as the loving God that he is, is at the end of our life, he looks at our life and says, you had repeatedly denied me and said you didn't want to be with me. I will honor that and you will be eternally separated from me because that's what you wanted. Amen. Now you, you have been, you, you have been, uh, uh, you have lived your life uh, in obedience to me, you have wanted to be with me. I know you haven't been perfect, but my grace is sufficient because you lived in a relationship with me. You want to be with me. You will be with me for eternity. We choose our eternity. God is not some, some psychotic, tyrannical God that just picks and chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He gives us this choice to pick our eternity. That's how a loving God can allow that to happen. Now, those first three verses are dark. That's why the next one, I put a pretty flower up there to kind of pull us out of that. 
The next two words are important. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, the next three verses are very, very important. For you are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now there's a lot in there. The first thing is this, the first three verses that we just went over are dark, they're a little depressing, they're pretty heavy. We talk about wrath and we talk about death and that's not fun stuff to talk about. But then Paul inserts these two very important words. He says, but God. But because we have a relationship with God, we do not live in death. We are made alive by the fact that Jesus was crucified, was buried for three days, rose again, and conquered that. So what that shows us is, <coughs> excuse me, not only does God love us, God has had tremendous mercy on us. We have not earned the opportunity to be spiritually alive, but because of God giving his only son on the cross, we have that opportunity to have life, to have hope, not only the opportunity to have life and hope now on this earth, but to have an eternity with him. Amen. So God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit through his son, Jesus, to not only give us hope and fulfillment, but the ability to live in a way that honors him until he comes back. Now, if you've never read the book of Revelation, and if you haven't, I recommend going back. I, I taught it about four years ago uh, for the third time. I, I, I love teaching the book of Revelation. I'm kind of jonesing to do it again. But anyways, taught that back a couple of years ago. And it's a very, very hard book to, to study until you get to the end, and it's, it's awesome. Revelation chapter 19, we have this imagery of a great banquet that once evil has been dealt with, since the rebellion against God has been dealt with, the judgment of God has already taken place, that all of us who are going to be in eternity with Christ, there's this imagery of us eating and drinking and laughing and just this joy and this peace and, and just because we are in our eternal home. That's the imagery that Paul is using here. That if we give our lives to Christ, not only does he help us now, we have this hope, we have this eternal reward and so because of our salvation, we're not only alive in Christ, we're empowered to fight evil. Not only do we not talk about sin as much as we should in, in church, because we have to address sin, we also don't talk about the power of God as much as we should in church. That's why the Bible says, that's why Paul wrote later on, there are people that have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of God. And we need to make sure that we are Christians that don't deny the power of God. There are too many people who are living like they're still dead. There are too many people who claim Christianity, but they're still in the bondage of their porn addiction or their insecurity or their affirmation addiction or whatever the thing is. And I'm not trying to make fun of you of that. I'm just saying you don't have to live like that. That the power of God can set us free of that, can give us the peace and security and that we can display the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. We can have those things in our life. We can be set free of things and we can go out into the world and set the example of for what love should really look like. Not this, this bastardized version of love that America sells you, that's not real love. And the reason why people are drowning in hopelessness and confusion and depression and everything else is because we have not defined what love really is. But the Christian should know what love is. And it even talks about this in the Bible and that we are to go out. And Jesus even said, I discipline you because I love you, which is completely contradictory to the world's version of love. The world's version of love is affirm everything I do. And if you don't, you don't love me. That's like if your child walks up to you and says, say that I can eat sugar for all three meals a day, stay up all night, do whatever I wanna do all the time, and if you don't, you don't love me. 
You'd actually be a pretty negligent, terrible parent if you allowed your kids to do this. To truly love the people that you say you love, there is discipline, there is times when you have to say, that is not good for you. And the world sells you a very different version of love, but we are to go out and respect all people, love all people, treat all people uh, with kindness, but also love them enough to say, hey, you're driving off a cliff. You should, you should go a different direction. That is a deeper, true love that we need to display. So now we get to these pivotal passages. And everyone loves these passages because it's free salvation, free grace, right? We love this. The word is very, very clear. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by God's grace through faith. And this is nothing that you can earn, nothing that you can do to get this. It is a free gift from God. And it is not from our works. Why? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. If we could earn it, we would get arrogant about it. So the Bible says if you could earn it, you'd just get cocky about it because God knows us. And if we're all being honest, we would, correct? So what we learn in verse eight and nine is that the salvation of God, is a, it's a gift. So we have to humble ourselves as individuals and as a people and realize that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves here and we cannot save ourselves in eternity. It, and, and we also cannot earn the love of God. It is a gracious gift. Now, let's, let's talk very, very personal. I'm gonna be very vulnerable and honest with you. Hopefully you'll be vulnerable and honest with yourself as we talk about this. And listen, I'm not saying this to, and, and, and I don't need anyone to come talk to me about this after service. I have not had a relationship with my dad for 17 of the 43 years that, that I've been alive, right? And I've gotten to a place to where I think that's actually better that I don't have a relationship with him. But anyways, because I have wounds from my childhood, lack of affirmation, lack of love for my father and all that stuff. I don't know if anyone else in the room does this, but when we have those kinds of parental wounds, we have a tendency to take our wounds from people on earth and apply them to our perfect heavenly father. Anyone else? Good, right? All right, anyone else struggle with these things? So, so in my life, because I never got the affirmation of my father, I feel like I have to work for the love of God. I feel like I have to perform in such a way to, to get him to, to, to notice me, to, to love me. I, I'm not questioning my salvation. I just, I want my dad to look at me, if that makes any sense. And the thing is, is I have had to learn over the years that as much as I try to do it, I'm like, God, you impressed with that? I almost feel God looking back down on me going, Corey, you can't do anything to make me love you anymore. It's a gift. Just live in it. You can't do anything to earn it. Just just enjoy it. Just, just do what I tell you to do. Follow my lead because I love you and we're good. And I don't know if anyone else in this room needs to hear this. We have a tendency to, to apply broken human actions to a perfect heavenly father. He's perfect. You don't have to do anything to earn his love. You don't have to do anything to earn his salvation. It is a free gift. Now, here's where we mess up as American Christians. We stop at verse 9. And we say, well, it's a free gift. There's nothing we can do. I can live like hell now because God loves me. And that's not biblical either. That's why you have to read verse 10. That's why it's good to keep on reading. So though salvation is a gift, the gift is received by us having faith. It's like if I buy you a brand new car, right? Let's say I buy you a, a brand new car, zero miles on it. It's beautiful, right? I, got, I buy this car. We walk outside and say, here's the key. It's free, it's paid for, but we have to take the initiative to put the key in the ignition and turn it on or the car goes nowhere. Salvation is the same thing. Bought, paid for, it's beautiful, it's new, it's all yours. Faith is the key though that, that ignites, that gets that salvation into motion. So we have to be responsible to receive that. And so though no matter how much we pray or study, or live out the teachings of the Bible, that cannot earn our salvation. But demonstrations of our faith should be a natural response to being saved. A natural response to being given a brand new car is to drive the car. A natural response to being given free salvation is to live in that salvation, to live in that freedom, to live in that obedience to God. That just makes sense. So God says it's all yours, live in it, live in it. And when we don't live in it, that is us rejecting the free gift. So again, 
It is clear that we are not saved by our works. Just so everyone in the room is clear on this, there's nothing you and I can do to work our way into heaven. But verse 10 in James chapter two, faith without works is dead, shows us that we are not saved by our works, but we are not saved from our works either. This is why verse 10 is important. Well, Corey, we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Just keep on going. You are created for good works. To say that one can be in Christ and not produce good works is not biblical because God didn't save your soul for us to become theologically fat Christians. That's not it. It's not so we can come to church and get our blessings and not do a damn thing in the world. That's not why we're saved. We're not saved so we can come in and make it all about us. That's American Christianity, not real Christianity. Real Christianity is Matthew chapter five, where, where Jesus says, you are my followers, go out into the world and bring some light to it. Go out into the world and bring some flavor to it. You are the salt, you are the light. Not only that, we are called to live holy. Amen. That we are called to live like God. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. It doesn't say be perfect as I am perfect because we can't be, but we can live in righteousness. We can live in a way that honors God and we can go out into the world and bless those around us. My wife's gonna get on to me for saying the D word earlier, I'm so sorry. She's watching right now. Mom's gonna call me today too. She lives in St. Louis. Why'd you have to say that word? So, the, <laughs> so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope or without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you are far away, who, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So what is going on there? Here's what's going on here. We have to know a little bit of, a little bit of context or this just doesn't make much sense to us. So there were both Jewish Christians and, and non-Jewish Christians in Ephesus, mostly non-Jewish Christians. But what was happening is the Jewish Christians were, were condescending or looking down on the non-Jewish Christians. If you study the Bible, biblically speaking, there are really only two people in the world, Jews and everybody else. So <laughs> the, the, the Jewish people in Paul's time were a, little, were a little arrogant about their heritage because they came from a nation that was built on the teachings of God and knowledge of God. They had uh, uh, literally thousands of years of pedigree and heritage. And now these, these people who were, who were Romans, who were Greeks, were now getting saved and a lot of them were bothered by that. One of the things that they were bothered about is the Greeks and the Romans were not circumcised, the males. And so the Jews found it as a, a source of pride that they not only knew all this stuff and had all the pedigree and history, they had a physical representation that they had a promise from God. 
So this is important. They lived in a nation that, that had pedigree. They lived in a nation that was built on the teachings of God, but they were not displaying the love of God to people. There was a heart problem. Do you know what they were saying? The Jews were saying, we look the part. We've been circumcised. And Paul talks about in Romans chapter two, since Jesus has died on the cross, it's not about a physical transformation. It's about a heart transformation. They were missing it. Listen, I'm not trying to just beat up on the United States today, but we were a nation that was built on biblical principles for the most part. We are a nation that started off honoring Jesus and throughout our whole history, that has always kind of been our, our, our big claim. We are one nation under God. Again, I don't, I don't think that's true anymore, at least not under the true God, but that's what we have built ourselves on. We have people in, in I'm gonna pick on us in the southeastern part of the country, who are fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation Christians. We've been at church our whole life. We have the right t-shirts and the right, you know, tattoos and the right stickers on our cars. And we have all that stuff. We, we have this knowledge of God. And then we go out into the world and we do not demonstrate the love of God. We look down on other people because we think, well, those people can't be saved. Look at them. Look at what they came from, right? Look at the mistakes they've made. Look at their inexperience. And we're acting just like what Paul was referring to with the Jews in Ephesus. But Paul's whole point was, since Jesus Christ resurrected, there is no Jew or Greek anymore. There's no dividing line. The history of the Jews is something, this is so neat, guys. The whole history of the Jews, we have been grafted into that history. Now the history of the Old Testament is now our history. We are grafted into that tree. We are now a part of that. And that wall of hostility is gone. So what that means is this, when it comes to other believers, when it comes to new converts, when it comes to anybody who gives their life to Jesus and submits to the authority of the word of God, we're to be at peace with them. The Bible says we're to be at peace with all people to the best of our abilities. But when it comes to other people who claim to be Christians, we, we are brothers, we are sisters. So this is very important. God not only wants us to live at peace vertically, God wants us to live at peace horizontally. That we are to be at peace with each other. It doesn't mean you have to like everyone that calls himself a Christian. Some of you probably don't like me very much, but you're my sister, you're my brother, and we're gonna be hanging out for a really long time in eternity. So, so we need to probably put our differences aside and learn to treat each other better. And so we all, <laughs> we all have access to God, regardless of your skin color, regardless of how much money you have or don't have, regardless of, of your history, regardless of the mistakes you've made. If we will humble ourselves and if we wanna have a relationship with God, because of God, the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, Spirit, all of the parts of God, this is so neat, all of the parts of God are working for your salvation. God had a plan, Jesus carried out the plan, and then the Holy Spirit gives us power to live in the plan until Jesus comes back. God loves you. doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done, if we will just humble ourselves and give our lives to God. And so Paul says, you're, you're no longer a stranger. You're, you're, no longer, you know, you're, you're no longer an outcast. We're all under the same God. And so the, I think the reason Paul talked about this, church would have looked very different in Israel than it did in Turkey and in, in Ephesus. It would have looked very different. Church would have looked very different in Rome than it did probably in Israel. Just like, um, man, church looks a lot different in Uganda than it does here. Church looks a lot different in the Northeast than it does here. A really good friend of mine, Father Finley, over at St. Patrick's Anglican Church, church looks a lot different at the Anglican Church than it does here. He and I are very good friends. We go out to lunch periodically. We still believe in the majors of the faith. And so what we learn from that is this. Theology cannot change. Everyone agrees with this, correct? There's a lot of, of, of whole denominations in the United States who are pulling stuff out of the New Testament because they don't think it's culturally relevant anymore. At the end of your Bible, if you go back and read, at the end of Revelation chapter 22, it says, do not remove things from this. Do not add things to this. That's, that's gonna be bad for you. But we have whole denominations pulling stuff out because they don't believe it's culturally relevant anymore. The problem is, is theology never changes. God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. On the other side of that, 
how we teach theology will always be changing. 50 years ago, they didn't have big old LED panels that you could snap together like Legos and present a PowerPoint to everybody. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with new music. There's nothing wrong with wearing jeans to church. The method by which we teach the gospel has to change because culture changes. But we have to remember that theology never changes. It cannot change. Hey, fun fact, if you ever become an Anglican and go to St. Patrick's, um, there's a picture of me in the foyer there. It's just me wearing a t-shirt and I got my arm around Father Finley. It's when he became installed as the, as the, the, the pastor there. And my, my point is, I'm gonna eventually have a picture of me in every foyer in every church in Murfreesboro. So if you leave here, inevitably you never escape my eyes, right? That I'm, that I'm there. <laughs> it's a good goal. I'm working on it. I'm gonna call Pastor Brady from New Vision after service and be like, hey, put a picture of me up in your foyer. Um, Here's something that I found that I thought was really, really interesting. So what Paul says is that, that God is building a temple. He's building a temple. And you and I are bricks in the temple. We're bricks. He says the foundation of the temple is the apostles, the disciples, and the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we are the bricks, the prophets, and the, and the disciples are the foundation. But it says the cornerstone is Jesus. Now, cornerstone there can actually mean two things. Cornerstone is a foundational stone. Everything is built from the cornerstone, right? The foundation. It can also mean keystone or capstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation. Jesus is also the capstone or the keystone, which, which completes the project or is the authority, if you will, over the project. And so Jesus has to be both of those things in our life the foundation and the authority, the top and the bottom. That's why Revelation 22 says he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He has to be both in our lives. And then the last thing, this is fun, you're gonna enjoy this, is, is the, the, the Gentile, non-Jewish Christians were probably having a little bit of a pity party because they had gotten offended in church. The Jews, the Jewish Christians were, were, were treating them poorly. So they were upset, they were offended, right? They're gonna leave and go to like a, another denomination. They didn't have those back then, but they were gonna leave because they got hurt in church. And Paul basically ends this part with a conclusion saying, look, we're all one under Christ. You're equal. You've been given grace. You've been given love. You've been given empowerment. You've been given everything that those people who are condescending you have been given or offered. And there is no excuse for you to be a victim because a victim mentality and Christianity are incompatible. Everyone wanna chew on that one for a second. Corey, you don't know how bad I was treated. Honestly, I don't care. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, it is bigger than your situation. If you wanna talk about being hurt in a church, come to a next class and I'll tell you all about it. My wife and I were very much hurt in a church. That doesn't mean that I stopped going to church or, or stopped my calling, right? That's foolish. If you stop going out, if you have one bad experience at a restaurant, you will never eat again. This is humanity. The bottom line is this, if you're, if you're waiting for humans to be perfect, even Christian humans, I wouldn't hold your breath because it's never going to happen. That's why we don't depend on humans. We ultimately depend on Jesus. And so Paul is saying to them, look, I'm sorry that you got hurt, but you gotta grow up and toughen up a little bit. You have the Holy Spirit. Well, Corey, you have no idea how, how much I was abused. And listen, I'm not trying to be insensitive, guys. You don't know the abuse I suffered. You don't, know, you don't know the neglect I suffered. You don't know the abuse and neglect I suffered. But again, the bottom line is this. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to overcome. And if we do not believe that, we will be stagnant. We, we, we will be hindered, right? So we have to believe that Jesus Christ can overcome our circumstances. So he starts off by saying there was a time we were spiritually dead. It says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Now this can be both a literal death and a metaphorical death, a spiritual death. It can be a literal death in the fact that um, if you have too much to drink and you hop on I-24 going the wrong direction, you're probably gonna get hurt and you're probably going to die. Uh, a friend of mine when I was in college that I knew ever since my middle school years, friend of Alicia and I got drunk one night when we were in college, hopped on I-24 going the wrong direction, 
hit an embankment doing about 120, died instantly. The wages of sin was literal death. It can also be spiritual death. It can ruin relationships. It can break apart families. It may end you up in jail. You may end up with unwanted pregnancies or sexually transmitted, whatever the case may be. There are natural and spiritual consequences to sin. We have to understand this. And if we understand this, we have to address our sin. We have to address it. If we claim to be Christians and we sin, I hope you feel remorse for that sin. Corey, are you saying my salvation's in jeopardy? I'm saying that's an irrelevant question. If we claim to love Jesus more than anything and we do something in disobedience to him, according to the Bible, we're under the influence of the devil and we should feel remorse for that and ask God to forgive us of that. Do we feel remorse for sin? Have we asked for God's forgiveness? Have we asked for God's help? God, help me. Have we, do we cry out to God in our temptation? Do we cry out to God in our moments of weakness? God, help me, help me, help me, help me. And God will help you. Do we pray for good people to be in our lives? Do we have accountability? Do we have a church family? Are we addressing our sin? Because if we don't, we cannot come out of death. We will be spiritually dead. And there are ramifications for that. But because God loves us, he is merciful. He gives us the opportunity to have life, to have hope, and it's free. It's free. We are saved by grace through faith. We just have to genuinely believe in him. That doesn't just mean that we believe that God exists. Again, the book of James says, even the devils in hell believe that God exists. They're still in hell. It is a saving faith. It is living like we believe that Jesus exists. It, it, is, it is acting on that belief. And if we will just have genuine faith in him, he will save us. Not just save us, he will sanctify us, which means we become more in the image of God. Amen. We change the way we think, we change the way we act, we change the way we live. We start to really understand what it means to live because we're no longer dead. That's what baptism is symbolic of. That's why we submerge you in water. That's why the Bible tells us to do that. The Greek word is baptismo, means, means to submerge in water because it is symbolic of dying to your old self and being raised from the grave to a newness of life, Romans chapter six says. So when we have a relationship with Jesus, just to let you know this, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you start a relationship with Jesus, Jesus gets into everything. Jesus' hands get into every single part of your life. He gets into your marriage, he gets into your friendships, he gets into how you raise your kids, he gets into your bank account, he gets into your job, he gets into your attitude, he gets in your car when you're driving and you get mad. Jesus gets into everything, and that's a great thing because he makes it all better. But we, we, we have to know that, and we can live in peace, and we can live in fulfillment. Why? Because we've been saved. Not only saved, I just said it, not only have we been justified, saved, we have been sanctified or, 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 or we have the opportunity to be sanctified, to be restored, to be put back together, to be made into what God wants us to be. And we are empowered. Why though? Why? To live in a way that honors God. We are not just saved to escape hell. We're not just saved so we can consume and take. We are saved because we have a mission because we have a purpose, because we are designed, as the, as the scripture says, to go out and do good things, things that God prepared before he even created the world. He knew good things that you and I would do. So we're not just saved to escape hell, we're saved for a reason. And because of this, we have to live responsibly. I, this is something else that our, our, our culture hates to talk about. We, we, we are the most irresponsible people on planet Earth right now. We do not think there are any ramifications for anything we do, and this is going to catch up with us. But we have to be responsible. Christians are called to be responsible. Our initial responsibility is to simply accept God's gift of forgiveness and salvation by welcoming Christ into our life. This kind of goes back to the car analogy, but James uses another one. 
James says that Jesus stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. He knocks, right? He doesn't kick his way in. He doesn't barge in and force himself, he knocks. We have to be responsible enough to get up and open up the door and say, please come inside. And if we do that, we are saved, we are changed, God works on us. But we have to be responsible enough to get off the couch, right, metaphorically speaking, and allow Jesus into our life. And then when we build a relationship with God, we are responsible for obeying the commands and teachings of the word of God. How do you know this? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Are you saying that I have to live a certain way to be saved? According to Jesus, yes. According to Paul, yes. I know according to American lazy Christianity, maybe you don't, but that's not biblical. That we are responsible to live in such a manner, right? To honor God and to bless those around us. But in order to do that, the only pathway for our restoration, the only pathway for us to find peace, the only pathway for us to find contentment and joy is we must do two things. We must make Jesus the cornerstone. Do you know how we do that, practically speaking? We live by this book. This is the word of God. This is the mind of God on paper, right? We make God the foundation of our life by living by the principles and teachings of this book. This is how we make him the foundation, right? That is the cornerstone, that everything we do is built upon the teachings and principles of that, that is making Jesus the foundation of our life. Not only though is he the foundation of our life, he has to be the thing above us. You know what that means? Then when it comes to my feelings, his teachings trump my feelings. His preferences trump my preferences. His desires for me are bigger than what I want for myself. So not only is he my foundation on how I live, that he is the authority in my life, that before I make any major decisions, God, what do you want me to do? You're my authority. I submit to you, you are my authority. He has to be the foundation of how we live and he has to be the authority on how we make decisions and what we do with our life. Logically speaking, I feel like I'm a pretty logical person. Logically speaking, has any other way ever worked for humanity? Again, it sounds like I'm just beating up on the United States today, but we are so arrogant in the United States that we are making the same mistakes that every civilization in history has ever made, but because we're Americans, we're evolved, right? We are going to do it differently. Doesn't matter that the Romans fell, the Greeks fell, the Persians fell, the Assyrians fell, the Egyptians fell, we're Americans, we're, we're gonna do it right this time. And we do all the same stupid stuff and we do it our way, and then we wonder why the world around us is crumbling, right? We wonder why our boys have gone soft and our girls have gone wild, and we wonder why like, like society is just absolutely tanking. It's because this is not our foundation, and he is not our authority. Let's take it out of culture and let's just apply it to ourselves. How is doing it your way working out for you? Has it been good? It might be for a moment, give you my word because I lived it, you will eventually crash. Our way eventually fails every time, every single time. And hopefully, I hope that we can be wise and humble enough to say, God, I keep finding out that my ways don't work. I wanna make this my foundation. I wanna make you my authority. And if we will do that, God will absolutely transform your life. God will, he will give you the things you have been looking for. He will give you joy. He will give you contentment. He will give you purpose. He will give you fulfillment. He will give you comfort. He will give you those things, but you have to trust him. We have to live in that zone in between of foundation and authority. We have to live in that. And if we will do that, God will absolutely change your world. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Forgive me for my, my first tear swear word this morning. I probably shouldn't have done that. Hey, if you're in this room um, and maybe you don't have a relationship with God, maybe it's not working, right? I'm talking about your decisions. Maybe life is crumbling and maybe it's because you have not submitted if you're in this room and you're digging, you're looking, you're on a journey, 
up here on my right, your left, is, is Rachel up here. Rachel works with our life groups. If you have any questions for Rachel, if you wanna talk to her, she'd love to talk with you, okay? We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, if you wanna confess something you're struggling with, if you need prayer for your family or your kids or just you or your job, whatever, it doesn't matter. Please let someone pray with you. And then the last thing is, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and if you're sitting in the middle, there's disposable bread and wine. That's communion. It represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the cross. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I wanna ask you to think about something this morning if you take communion. I want you to, to, to be very honest with yourself maybe while you're sitting there or maybe on your ride home or maybe later tonight if you're praying or sitting alone. Think about this. Ask yourself and answer honestly, have I made Jesus through the word of God my foundation? Have I made Jesus my authority? Have I made him my foundation? Have I made him my authority? I want you to just really think about that. Meditate on that, ponder on that. Father God, I love you so much. Lord, I love this church. Forgive me, Father, if I've been overly sarcastic or harsh this morning, God, forgive me for that. I, I, I love this church. God, I love the people in this room. I, I pray, Lord, that you, that, that you not only bless the people in this room, that you protect them, keep them safe, Lord. Keep your hand on their relationships, on their family, God. Keep your hand on them. Keep your hand on them as they go back out into a very confused and broken and dark world, God, that, that we can be the light, that we can be the salt, that we can be um, a, a positive force in the world around us, God, that we can live honorably, Lord, that we can please you and, and as our Father, God, that we can make you proud, Lord. Thank you for loving us even when we're broken. Thank you, God, for loving us even when we make mistakes. And <clears throat> thank you, God, for loving us even when we're selfish. I pray that you continue to have grace and mercy on us, Lord. Keep your hand on us, God, until we meet again. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.